action. Welcome to Taunt Starts, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk. And Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies, but we're not going to sleep. We're never sleeping again, Rob. To celebrate our second anniversary, we are running down all of the films in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. That's a lot of films. Not as many as I thought there were going to be. What is it, 10 or 11? Um, if you count seven, the remake nine. Seven. Oh yeah it's only nine Yeah Oh brilliant When the Friday the 13th movie went to 11 films uh, Jason 10 Freddy vs Jason is, is 11 Then the remake's 12 12, 12 films Yeah Christ And we've really like We really slacked with Halloween Because we only watched about four of them <laughs> No We watched the first one The second one H2O, H2O. I watched the beginning of Resurrection, then turned it off. Oh, yeah. So there's five in that. Yeah, there was five in that episode. But and I, then the I just couldn't sit through like parts three, four, five, uh-huh. or six. <laughs> that's funny because that's how I feel about Nightmare on Elm Street. What's your earliest memory of uh, Fred Krueger? Um, I, I literally went about watching Nightmare on Elm Street completely backwards because I started with Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Right, so um, 1994. Yeah, 94. I don't know why. I think maybe it was just the first one I saw in the video shop when I was going through my video shop horror uh, phase. Yes. Um, and I'm pretty sure I, that's the first one I watched, which was just in some ways ingenious, but also stupid because I didn't understand any of the references. I was going to say, was it just not completely baffling? It was just a kind of like... Um, an interesting film about an actress who ended up facing a boogeyman. Like that's. What but did it was. you realise that the film they were talking about was a real film in our world? I really can't remember. I mean, we're talking twenty something years, years ago that mm. I saw it, so I, I honestly have no idea. But so when her son Dylan is watching a Nightmare on Elm Street on TV, yeah. I had no idea what that was, um, and it was actually a really great introduction to the franchise because. It was, it's so different. It does literally stand on its own. A hundred percent. Literally stands on its own. Yes. Um, that's a really bad use of the word literally. <laughs> it doesn't stand anywhere. It's a literal metaphor. Yeah. Um, so then I must have gone back and then just started from the very beginning and then watched them all. I didn't really have any horror friends. This is the thing that I was thinking about. Like, you know how we, we've talked about horror films in the past, especially the slasher films and how I watched Free, Scream all back to front Halloween I was obsessed with, but I wasn't watching them with anyone, really. Like, I didn't have any friends who loved horror. So Freddy Krueger wasn't in my vocabulary. I had no idea who that was. I didn't have any horror friends either. In fact, I didn't really have any movie friends. Mm, Yes, same. It was like you watched a movie every once in a while with a friend, but it wasn't something you did specifically together. Well, no, like we went to the the cinema, but it wasn't like... They weren't into movies as much as I am. Mm. And... It was more that we were into comic books and sort of Kevin Smith, Jane Silent Bob stuff. Uh-huh. So there was a bit of a crossover, but actual movies, no. Yeah. So I discovered, I discovered Elm Street. I discovered Nightmare on Elm Street when we got cable and suddenly I had access to 
more than just the big Sunday night movie or the big Saturday night movie on ITV, you know, yeah. when it got split by the news and you had to wait an yeah. extra half an hour for the end to see what well, what's going to happen to Riggs and Murtaugh? What's going to happen? <laughs> so I remember years before I got into movies, so about 1991, I woke up in the middle of the night and put the TV on in my room. I was one of those kids. <laughs> and an advert came on. I now know it was for uh, Fred's Dead Part 6. Uh. But that because like it was showing in the cinemas, yeah, because it was advertising the film and it okay. was 91. Wow, and that trailer alone shit me up because Freddy is terrifying. If you're like, what were you, 10? No, like 91, eight. I was eight, yeah, so eight or nine, this scary, like scarred guy with knives for fingers, yeah, and in the middle of the night as well, when you'd just woken up and you couldn't sleep, 100%. I can't believe you had a TV in your room when you're eight years old the tv in my room from birth <laughs> honestly i can remember like watching ghostbusters when i was about five no Whoa. no no it was around the time that the second one came out so 89 89 yeah so, so i was were. about six oh my five God. or six in my room on a actually weirdly on a black and white television <laughs> i feel like this explains a lot about rob and his psychology my parents have never censored movies yeah I, I could watch whatever I wanted huh. as a kid. And I remember once I, I chatted with my neighbor who's the same age as me. I think we we're in the same class at one point. And I said, did you see it last night? You know, the, 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 the two part Tim Curry TV series. And he went, no, my mum's my watching it to see if I'm allowed to watch uh, it. Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind. Like, why? Because, huh. I mean, I, I've always been aware it's make believe. Yeah. But things can kind of pierce through that that safety net and kind of get you. Yeah. So around the same time that I was scared shitless of the Freddy Krueger trailer, I caught a bit of Stand By Me and I got really scared when Carl Rayner cuts to the close-up of the body on the tracks. Yeah. That scared the shit out of me. In a way so that real. doesn't happen now. That's so real as well. Visceral, like a dead body. Oh my God. But I'd never seen that in film before because yeah. all the other stuff I'd been watching were things like <laughs> Suburban Commando, E.T., all the stuff that, you know, Bank Holiday Monday. Yeah. And then suddenly all this new stuff was beginning to creep into my mm. sort of my area, I guess, my within reach. Yeah. Um, anyway, should we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first one, I, I fucking love this first one. Uh-huh fucking love this one this is the big film that made wes craven before then he was making porn he was making porn he no, started he out like, as a porn director no but he was making like last house on the left yeah, and the hills yeah. of ice so he was making schlocky horror films yeah. that um seem to have taken on a life of their own and i've seen bits of all of them and they're not really for me but they were this... very controversial and very low budget and it was a lot it it fed into that fear of violence against women in films and, and that kind of stuff. So yes. he, he did seem like a really edgy, controversial director when suddenly he had this idea. Well, maybe that's why he was able to get this made. Him and Bob Shea from um, New Line Cinema put up the money themselves. Bob Shea got to keep all the copyright and the sequel rights to get this made. But maybe Wes was the right person to make this because it does have at its core an incredibly strong female character in nancy mm. Mm. yeah it does watching it again this time that really was hammered home and she kind of breaks a lot of the rules of how to write a likable hero because she's like 
when she's in the bath and her mum is like, oh, I've made you some hot warm milk. And she's like, ugh, warm milk, gross. <laughs> yeah, like, she's really gross, bull- warm milk. <laughs> it's disgusting. Why would you drink that? But she's really bullshit and she's got attitude and get she's like... horrible film on the top of... <laughs> it's horrible. I'd rather stay in the bath and get slashed to death. It's like white skin. <laughs> horrible. Anyway, you digress. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, she's, she's kind of... Uh, uh, she's a great heroine because she's not going to go down without a fight. Yeah, and she's very different to Laurie Stroud, Strode. who is Strode Stroud. Yeah, very different to her because Laurie is very much a oh oh no oh, oh, yeah, oh, and not in a good way. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I I I would much rather watch a film with Nancy. She is my preferred. Scream Queen, let's say. Uh-huh. And in terms of all the, the big three slashers, because I, I wouldn't call Texas Chainsaw Massacre a slasher. No. The big three are Jason, Michael, and Freddy. Mm. So Michael from Halloween, Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, and Freddy from this one. Freddy's always been my preferred he- uh, hero. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a Freudian slip for you. He is... As I said on the Friday the 13th episode, my favourite child molester. <laughs> Fred and Rose West have nothing on Freddie. Yeah, yeah. But he is, as a character, there's so much more to work with. Jason and Michael are obviously limited because all they are are shapes. They're like sharks. They silently kind of just slice through the atmosphere and kill you, whereas Freddie wants to have a bit of fun. Yeah, and it helps that he talks. It helps that he has a much more interesting backstory that will often play a part in the series. Mm. Yeah. Well, each of the, each of the films amplifies different things about the mythology. Yes. And the first one, similar to how we discussed with Halloween, you can only do the first one once, obviously. The only thing is, I think that the first 20 minutes or first half an hour are so solid and so horrifying. The film really struggles to match the impact of Tina's death and the ripple effect that has in the scenes following that scene. Well, it's such a huge effect and it's such a, mm. a, a visual treat, let's say, to right. watch a, a girl being torn to pieces <laughs> going around a room, like up the walls across the ceiling. It is difficult sometimes for films to recover from such an amazing set piece. Because it's the all bets are off sequence where you're just like, holy shit, like this is the extent of what can happen in mm. this world. We've seen it before in Psycho. That film doesn't recover after the shower scene. Exactly, exactly. The story continues and it's it's really good, mm. but it's almost like the peak is the turning point. Yeah. It's funny it's that, downhill from there. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring up Psycho because either if it's inadvertently or consciously, I don't know, but they have the blondes die, brunettes live thing in Psycho and also in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Blondes always die, brunettes are always the cleverer, smarter ones who survive. What colour was Rose McGowan's hair in Scream? Blonde. There we go. Yeah. And who survived? Sydney. Sydney. Yeah, there you go. Sydney. Um, but it does struggle to recapture that visceral horror because it's now played its full deck in some regards. Yes. So the stuff with the body bag when she's been dragged around the hall is horrifying and awful and horrible. But as soon as it starts to get more into like the investigatee, um, the parents are obviously hiding something. It's great. It is fantastic. But it loses that early shock value i think well i think if the the whole film was just a sequence of surreal elements then that would hold no weight you have to come back into the real world to 
to give it some real basin. Mm. Um, is basin a real word? Basin? Basin. No, it's like a base. <laughs> base in. <laughs> a foundation. <laughs> That's it. Give it a real foundation to, to make the surreal elements work. To, to make them so different to the boring everyday stuff like mum's got a drinking problem, mum mm. and dad don't want to talk. But the the whole film is seeped from the moment it first rolls in this this heavy, heavy dread. Yeah, and it, it sets it up so well right at the start when you see the creation of the, the glove. Yeah. And you're like, oh God, what is this person doing? And then it, the, the frame actually does widen out because it has that small kind of letterbox, small frame on mm-hmm. it showing the construction of the knife glove. And then the, the camera or the, the screen expands to lead us into this like hellish apocalyptic landscape, which is a wet dripping um, kind of boiler corridor, house. boiler house corridor. The boiler house, yeah. And it feels sweaty and grubby and horrible, but it doesn't feel cheap. No. It feels like alien. It feels lived in and, mm. and like real, so real. Like there's a lamb running around, which is just like so weird. <laughs> yeah. um, I really, really connect with the surreal elements. Mm. I really like the blending of, of real life and dream life. And I, I, what I also really connect with this, this first one is that it's so seeped in Americana of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, the, yeah, it is. Like the teenagers and the greaser the haircuts. cars, and they've all got the collars up. There's a mm. red Cadillac. They've got varsity jackets on. They're all talking about football. It it feels very fifties. Yeah, you're and right. And obviously fifties and the sixties, but particularly the fifties was the big boom for America. That mm. was when they had won the war. They were out of the recession. They were out of the Great Depression. And suddenly everyone had money and teenagers were suddenly a thing. Yeah. American graffiti and all that. Mm. So it, it, it's apt that this film would be very 50s infused mm. because the enemy, if you're looking at it from Freddie's point of view, are the teenagers. Because they're around and they're, they're suddenly having identity. It's like the sexual revolution as well obviously came in the 60s. And, yeah. Um, so it's the society was changing, I suppose. Um, and there, obviously, there is a lot of a, a sexual subtext to Freddy. Like, there's a lot of the women that he killed, the teenage women that he kills in A Nightmare on Elm Street. He's literally in bed with both of them at some point in the film and in the bath. Um, and actually, he's in bed with the guys. You know, two other guys die in bed. Um, one in a, in yeah, a jail one in cell, the, and then one in the bed, and one actually in, he gets dragged into the bed. Um, so there is really like a psychosexual undertone or even an overtone to the story. Would you call Freddy a supporting character in this one? Uh, he's barely in it. Yeah, he is. He's in it more than from the very start. He's in it more. Whereas other sequ- the, some of the other sequels don't actually drop him until over half an hour, 40 minutes in. Mm. Um, he is a supporting character because even though the story is about him it's not his story. It's Nancy's story. No, it is Nancy's story. Yeah. So it is her. It's she's the lead. She is the, the. It's her story. Yeah, she's having the nightmare. It's just. It just reminded me of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, mm. where he wasn't a lead 
character. He was very much a supporting actor, a supporting mm. character. He's in the film 10 minutes of screen time at that. Yeah. And yeah, Anthony Hopkins won the actor award for mm. best actor, the mm. Oscar. It just got me thinking because so much of Elm Street is about Freddy and his presence is felt so much throughout the film. Mm. But yet he barely appears on screen. Well, he's almost like a phantom. He, he's, yeah, he, he doesn't actually have a physical presence for most of the film. And that extends to when Rod is killed in the jail cell. He, mm. You don't actually see Freddy doing it. You just see the, the, the blanket or the sheet yes. going around his neck. Filmed, filmed backwards. Ah, clever. I love the in-camera effects here. Yeah, yeah, really clever. So like when Nancy's lying in bed and, and Robert Eglin's pushing through the kind of rubber wall. Mm, so effective. So effective. The the rolling room when Tina is killed or yeah. the cut scene when the blood comes up out of Glenn's bed that they never put into the film. Well, then maybe they did put into the film. Then they put it into the film. They didn't put him coming back up and flopping down. Oh, I've never seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, a cut scene in the, um, in the Nightmare uh, documentary. There's like a four-hour documentary. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's like a... Yeah, it covers all the entire franchise, doesn't yes. it? Yeah, except the remake because it came out before uh, the remake. Oh, yeah. Uh, the mashed potato stairs were really fun. Oh, brilliant. Which was directed by, um, not uh, Wes Craven, I think Rob Shea directed that or somebody like... Uh, Bob Shea, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he, he, re- he was adamant that we have to have something like that because yeah. he kept seeing it in his head. So Wes stepped aside and let him direct that scene. The only thing that's annoying about that is you can see the step above yeah. <laughs> her already has gloopy <laughs> yeah. stuff in it so it actually ruins the effect um and like you said the the bed sheet moving around rod's mm. throat i like the the almost ropiness to this film as well so clearly done on a budget clearly no cgi which is great you know i like things done in camera but at one point freddie comes over the banisters lands on the stairs and you can see the mattress that he lands on oh really i never noticed that <laughs> and then um when rod i think it's rod jumps out or someone jumps out of a window and they land in the rose bushes. Oh, isn't that Nancy? Is it Nancy? And you can see it bouncing. You see the crash mat. <laughs> yeah. But it, I, I like that. I love it when ropey... she gets up and she's like, God damn it. Like she's really pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. I like that kind of held together by sticky tape and yeah. super glue and chewing gum. Which kind is so of much feel more... to, to a film. Yeah, it's so much more charming than like in, just jumping ahead to the remake. In the remake, they recreate both the scene of the bed where Tina dies and also Freddy coming out of the wall and they do it in CGI and it's so charmless and so it looks terrible. It's aged really badly. It it wasn't even good then. I remember seeing that at the Odeon in Leicester Square, not the good one, the other one that's not there anymore, the little one. Um, And thinking that was shocking. Terrible. Fucking shocking because it was what, six months after Avatar had come out. Yeah. And over a decade, almost a decade since Jurassic Park, Yes. You know, it's like you can you can at least be you can at least animate a wall. Come on. Oh, 100% like 17 years since Jurassic yeah. Park came out. Oh yeah. 2010. Oh god, yeah, of course, yeah. Do you think the parents felt or showed any remorse for their part in Freddy's creation? Well, the mum is clearly an alcoholic. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> so much so that she can't actually act. No, she was awful. <laughs> so bad. So bad. But Surely, if you hide 
like a bottle of vodka in the airing cupboard are you not just drinking hot vodka <laughs> oh. <laughs> and also be. she's really bad at hiding the fact that she's an alcoholic I like, know Nancy comes downstairs and it's almost like she's not expecting to see her daughter and she's just got the bottle behind her on the kitchen counter or just yeah. <laughs> like what <laughs> no, I can see that Rob stink of booze <laughs> but if you lean against the, the banister just downing a bottle someone's going to see you yeah and also, I just didn't buy the fact that she hid Freddie's gloves in a weird oven in the basement. Was it in the basement? In her basement, in the house. Really bizarre. But then she also put it in... Did she put it in the kitchen drawer as well? <laughs> no, the hat goes in the kitchen drawer. The hat goes in... Oh, of course, well, silly yeah. me. <laughs> Which Nancy just takes <laughs> out and is like, throw it away, <laughs> huh, mum? Did you think you threw it away? <laughs> Got it, drunk mum. Got it. Why does she keep them? Uh, is it hiding evidence? Clearly not. Because <laughs> she tells her 16-year-old daughter, who's clearly insane, according to her, that, um, exactly where it is. But they never, they never fully go into why the dad and the mum are not together. And I actually no. think that I didn't want to know. No. I, I didn't feel I needed the backstory. The, the, uh, the ambiguousness of it was mm. enough to keep that mystery going. Yeah. Because but, they're meant to be, it's meant to be the parents of these teenage characters, isn't it? Yeah, but, 100%. But then... Um, yeah, so the dad and the mum and other people were the ones who burnt Freddie. Yeah, so Glenn's parents seem delightful and actually quite... If a little cookie cutter like yeah. Cherry Pie, 80s, voting for Reagan, that kind of family. Yeah, she looks a bit like Mrs. Voorhees, actually, with the short hair. Mm. Um, you don't see Rod's parents, you don't see Tina's. You see Tina's mum maybe once the, or... Was there a funeral? In, yeah. Well, no, was there a funeral in the first one? There was one. I can't there was remember. Multiple there. funerals in one of these. Films. I, I love how quickly. <laughs> I love how quickly funerals happen in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Someone dies, and within a day, there's a funeral, and there's no investigation. Probably Jewish. Like <laughs> we bury within forty-eight hours. Wow. Maybe they were. We don't do what you do. Just hold on to them for a while. Just put them in one of those medical drawers. Yeah, like along with Freddie's hat. Two weeks later, it's like, oh, now we're ready. All right. Keep them on eye. And that's just a regular dead person, not even a mur- suspected murder victim. They probably like, want to bury them quickly. Uh, anyway. They take enough photos. The film is, it is about trauma though, isn't it? It's, oh, the whole thing, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, I mean, it's nightmare. It's about trauma. It's about trauma. It's about consequences. It's about karma. Mm. It's about revenge. Yeah. But, so this is the thing that I really don't like about this first night on Elm Street. And it was really glaring watching it this time. Is that... Yes, they changed the ending to have that that franchise hook of "Oh, Freddie may not actually be dead." Yes, but it's not a satisfying ending in any way because you have you've you've come to really care for Nancy and you actually really want to make sure that she's okay. Um, and the last you see of her, inverted commas, in the real world, as as far as we're aware, is her turning her back on Freddie. I mean, we assume this is in the real world. Her turning her back on Freddie and him. Be, uh, his power being stripped away and he's now powerless to actually t- touch her and he's gone um but then she opens the door and steps outside and it's kind of weirdly um bright and sunny and her mum's there and not drunk not drunk clearly had a bit of a pampering session <laughs> yeah um and <laughs> she's done a face mask with boots yeah she's feeling great but she did a selfie online face mask tuesday <laughs> But we have no idea at what actually has happened to Nancy. And I feel that's so unresolved. And I have a really... theory. Uh, okay, tell me. I have a theory. So I it think could the be last... bunnies. Sorry, what? It could be bunnies. Could be bunnies. It's from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
you I've got a theory. Buffy. So, I think the last half an hour of the film is a dream. Yeah. Because there's a scene where she concocts a plan. She asks Glenn to stay awake. And quite frankly, his track record on that is <laughs> shocking. I love that she wakes up and she's like, what did you do, you idiot? You fell asleep. Hey, Johnny Depp is just lying. I'm just like... I'm just too hot to stay awake. He's so hot. Oh, my God. That, what a hot 25 that, year old that cut off like jersey oh my god I'm going to start wearing one oh. <laughs> I'll look like Peter Griffin but I'm going to start wearing one I will look like Johnny Depp in my head in my head and so she asks Glenn to stay awake because he's over the other side and she's like chatting on the phone and through the bars yeah um, he wants Glenn to meet her on the porch at midnight yeah he of course gets killed she's then looking at photos of her and her friends Mm -hmm. and she's sort of dozing off then next thing we see is she's speaking to her dad because she now knows glenn's dead and she says i'm gonna go get him you need to come get me at half past 12 so if glenn was meant to meet her at 12 and the last thing we saw was him looking at the clock and it was about quarter to 10 to 12 Uh so the police have turned up they've cordoned off everything the dad's spoken to nancy so at most, that's 20 minutes. So mm. now it's 10 past 12, mm. let's say. We are expected to believe that Nancy booby traps the entire house <laughs> and goes into the dream world, has a complete finale, wakes up. Has a complete finale. Has a finale. <laughs> <laughs> has a complete finale, wakes up and is victorious. Yeah. All within 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. The time frame doesn't work out. I think she fell asleep when she was looking at the photos. And yeah. everything that plays out from there is the dream. And Freddie's toying with her so much that he waits until the very last moment to kill, the, to drag a mannequin through the window. Yeah. And get the friends who had died yeah. in the car and off they go. Mm. I honestly don't know. All I know is that Wes Craven's original ending was basically the same, but it just didn't have the Freddy stuff. It didn't have the mum being dragged through the window. It didn't have the car being... So they just of drove off happy. Freddy I know they shot multiple Yeah, endings. they shot like five variations of that ending. And um, But I don't mind this ending, especially when you look well, at it through the prism of, is the last 30 minutes a mm, dream? Well, the theory, well, Wes Craven's idea was the entire film is a dream. So at the end... Her so kid, who's dreaming? Nancy. Right. Or Freddy, I don't know. No, I don't know. It, but the, the idea that it's all a dream is now such a cliche. Yes. I guess it works. It was ma- a cliche then. Yeah, yeah. The Wizard of Oz. Dallas as well. And yeah. Yes, Dallas. Um, but <laughs> ha- having come to care about Nancy so much, I just felt robbed slightly at the end. And I was just like, and then going into Elm Street 2, when they, they drip feed little bits of information about what happened to Nancy that don't really make any sense. I'm yes. still like, what happened to Nancy? I just want to know what happened to her. Well, that confirms it, doesn't it? Yeah. That confirms it. Oh, she went mad and she killed her mum. And her mum... Or no, the, the house burnt down or something. In the second one, he says in the diary or whatever, the Nancy went crazy and her mum killed herself in the living room. Or the bedroom. No, they said that he says the living room. And it's like, well, she was never... She was lying in the living room at one point. At one point drunk she was, on the sofa. Yeah. That's true. But then, so what is the franchise telling us? When, where's the break? What happens there? I just, I was so confused. How did you feel about the second one? Can we just talk about dream logic? Oh yeah, go for it. 
So I thought this would be quite a fun thing to do for each film because it really varies between the films. Yes. Um, but so the dream logic in this first film is that one of the big things is Nancy discovers you can take things out of dreams. Yes. So if you grab hold of things, yeah, you can drag them out. So that's I a got big... his hat. The bit of fabric. <laughs> Doesn't... I liked her. I really like her. I like Heather Lallencamp. I... She should be in more. I do like her, but she has this weird thing where if she's acting shocked or scared, sometimes she looks like she's smiling and really happy. <laughs> she's so got... It's a bit confusing. She's a good-looking girl, but... One or two teeth too many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's like, there's always like a kid in class who's just all teeth. Yeah. Like you've yeah. got to grow into your teeth. <laughs> and she didn't. She never grew into her teeth. She's like, well, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem from the Muppets. <laughs> but she's brilliant. She's incredibly like good looking as a, I'm being objective. That hair is Because she's a female. Amazing. Yeah. But yeah, that hair. Oh and, my and God. The hair is almost the same in yeah. 10 years later. Yeah, it's um, yeah. But you digress. It looks better 10 years later. It looks more moisturized. Yes. Yeah. No one was given their hair water yeah. in the 80s. <laughs> so, Dream Logic, we discover Nancy can take things out of dreams. Meanwhile, Tina is killed by being thrown around the bedroom. So, that makes a kind of sense because she is in the dream, presumably, being thrown around. So, it's kind of manifested in her physical body. To a degree. I mean, he. he she is rolling up the wall and across the ceiling. She's not just being thrown around. She is levitating. Yeah. There is a force there. So Freddy seems to have some sort of reach into the real yeah. world. Whatever he does in the dream world, he's, it's being replicated in the real world. Yes, but this is where it starts to slightly fall apart because it seems... So with the Tina death, it seemed, the rules seem to be the physical person can be affected in the real world by freddy but not the things around them so she is she's being thrown around yeah. the room is not moving nothing in the room is killing her she is just being killed in her dream and what happens in dream manifests on her body yeah um but then when rod is killed we see a bed sheet moving on its own and going around his neck so yes he should if he was being strangled in the dream nothing would actually happen in the room. we didn't world. see his dream no but we presume in the dream he was being strangled. I guess we have to assume that, yes. Yeah, which somehow means it animates a bedsheet. But then in the real world, that shouldn't happen because when Tina died, we should have then seen something physically throwing her around. It just doesn't quite match up. But the fact that Nat- Nancy could bring his hair in and a bit of the rip jumper. Yeah. So if she could do it that way, take something out of the dream world, can he not manifest stuff from the dream world into the real world hence yeah. the bed sheet but then it always just starts to fall apart because it means that he could do that whenever anybody is sleeping he could just kill people like that when they're sleeping without having to do anything to them in their dreams which is how he gets Glenn no Glenn is asleep but it's happening in the real world progressively as mm. the film goes on the dream world and the real world are blended more and yeah, more yeah 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 because his hand comes out Glenn goes into the bed and then Glenn's blood comes yeah. up. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fine. So I think the logic is blood tight in uh, the first film. It was just the it was just the bed sheet in the cell that I didn't understand. Because you don't see anything slashing Tina's chest open in the in the bedroom. But she was the first or second death. Hmm. He was the he was no, she was the first death in the film, right? But if you don't need a real world, yeah, if you don't need a real world equivalent 
to do something to the victim, then you don't need the bedsheet to become animated. No. Okay. That's just, that's what I thought. I guess someone can go either way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's confusing. It, where's, if you're listening, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. So number two, did you, did you feel we needed a sequel? And if we did need a sequel, was that the sequel you wanted? When I first saw the second one, I was disappointed by it. Was that as in back um, in the day? Yeah, back in the day, I felt like it was the ugly duckling of the franchise. Oh, and it's, poor and it, Jesse. I know. and It's, it's not that ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Although he looks very different in the opening sequels on the bus where he's got like a gelled hair and he looks really quite nerdy and insipid. I think that was the whole point of him, wasn't it? I guess so. He wasn't meant to be you know, the sexy jock. No. He was meant to be like the Eugene from Greece. So is that his self-image of him actually being like really horrifically nerdy? I That's guess. a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. I mean, the the, the second film is a very different beast for, yeah. to start off with, but you were disappointed. I was at the time, but actually now I think it's, because it's just, I feel bad for it because it's got such a bad reputation. And for some reason, all the filmmakers and all the producers and everyone involved in the film and the franchise now use it as a bit of a that's how not to make a freddy film um, and i can understand that well it's not a franchise film it doesn't work as a franchise film because it doesn't do the same thing as the first film and it doesn't expand the world in a way that is franchise ready no and it tries to retcon what happened to nancy it just tries to scrub it slightly under the table because even they don't really know what happened to us so they're just going to make just like go, oh, well, that did, and we'll just not talk about it. One thing that I've noticed throughout the entire series, why do they keep coming back to Nancy's house? She mm. wasn't the only M- uh, Elm Street kid, so why do they keep coming back to that house? Yeah. Why is it that Jesse and his family have to move in? Why is it that we see a diary that we never seen before? She hadn't been writing it. No, and and you know over and over again throughout the franchise that is the emblematic house like the haunted house of horror mm. it's like the myers house in or Halloween. the psycho house it's like the psycho house or cape crystal camp, lake camp, camp crystal, crystal lake, lake. Yeah, yeah it's like that place that when you go there you know you're fucked yeah um and it doesn't really make any sense because if you're going to go anywhere it's the boiler place which they often do which they do go in to for the first for the first time they go there in this film in the second one no they went in the they went to the boiler house in the first film. It opened in the boiler house, didn't it? With Tina having a dream. Well, it was a dream. It wasn't. Oh, the I actual. see. I mean, and the real one, they go yeah, to. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Jesse's supposedly girlfriend is like, oh, look what I found out. This is the boiler place. It's a nuclear power plant. Oh, what? Meryl Streep. Yeah, Meryl Streep. Exactly. I thought it was Gummy <laughs> Gumba or whatever her name is. Oh, Mammy. Mammy. Is it Mammy? Mammy Gummer. I don't know. Her real life daughter. <laughs> yeah. No, no relation whatsoever. It's, it's like chilling. No, no, no. Mammy Gumba is um, Mel Street's real daughter. Yeah. But the woman in this set, this Elm Street 2 is not. It's no relation. But she looks more like Mel Street than Gummy Gumba. It's the scariest thing in the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I've, I really actually like this film, partly because of the weird gay subtext of stuff, which isn't actually subtext. It was written by a gay man. Yeah. And Jesse is played by a gay actor. It's just yes. there. I actually really like it, and I watched it again this morning. And it's does some of it doesn't work. And is yes, that why your face was flush when you when I opened when you opened the I door? I was just to me? like, "Oh, Grady, Grady, wear your red shorts." <laughs> that was a scene. <laughs> that was a scene when they wrestle on the football field, and his his things come down. Oh, his jockstrap! Oh, shocking, shocking, bum. so so um, so gay. Actually, <laughs> what do you, do you why do you not like this one? 
There are some really amazing concepts in in this film. The mm. fact that he wants, you know, he 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 wants to come through, come through. It's coming out of him literally. Literally has to come through Jesse, and Jesse's like his body is flopping a bit, like when um, Ian Holmes' head yeah. gets knocked off in Alien, or when Bishop mm. is torn apart. It's really effective. It's very effective, and yeah. it's all in camera. That was really cool. But the problem is, Freddy, at the time, when he's in the real world, he doesn't have as much, and it's not dark, it doesn't have as much power as when he's in the dream world. So yeah. when Robert Eglin's running around the pool, yeah, it was a bit silly. It was like, it was just like a, an old man in a hat yeah. running around guy... scaring people with amazing bodies. Like <laughs> yeah. there were no fat people at that pool party. They were popular. But they kind of like a fat section. Because <laughs> I'd be there eating my M&Ms going, oh, glad I'm not over there with the popular people. They're getting torn apart by that weird little man. <laughs> that weird little man. <laughs> but there was a, a wonderful cinematic moment where he had his hands up at the pool party mm. and the fire was mm. raging behind him and he just goes, you are all my children now. Mm. It's the only creepy moment in the film. Yeah. And like he jumps through the windows and goes invisible and stuff. That It doesn't make any sense. The dream logic is not there. No. But I prefer Freddy in part two to Freddy who was in part five and six. Yes. Um, like he was 100%. actually... They witched up his makeup so he actually looked really quite awful. Um the only thing is, Freddy wears a glove. Mm. That is the iconic thing. I don't necessarily want Freddy without a glove and the the knives coming out of his fingers. Mm. I like it when he's got the glove because there's a there's a there's a sense of danger for him there. That if he loses the glove, what's he gonna do? Oh, okay. Because okay. if the blades go, then mm. he has to get he has to improvise. I loved the. I loved all the body horror stuff in this one. I thought it was so cool and different. And I love that it dared to be different. You know, it was, they were still finding out how they could build a franchise. Yes. And Wes Craven wasn't involved in this one. Wes Craven didn't really like it. He thought that the, it didn't really make any sense, Mm. um, which is true. Um, But there's, I feel like this film messes up the dream logic less badly. (laughs) (laughs) You're a writer. I know. Than the the subsequent ones. Um, So I feel like, this second one is is really fun. It tries to be, do something different. I love the gay subtext stuff. I love that, that it amplifies that real body horror stuff. And Freddy's allowed to be scary. He is scary. He takes the top of his head off and he's got a brain. And it's really horrible. If I only had a um, brain. The only weird thing is that later on in, in the film, like the, the music that starts the film is a bit like Friday the 13th, a bit E.T. fantasy. It's all quite uh-huh. gorgeous and rich. And then the more it goes along, it starts adding in like, whale sounds <laughs> it's like freddy does not like whales it's really weird he's not even a vegan he's like an anti-vegan <laughs> oh and jesse's scream is hilarious oh jesse's such a weak so character funny no but i like i like jesse but he's very weak he is he's to not the point where he disappears and a girl takes over so it's it's great again that they're you know they're very ahead of the curve they're having a very powerful female character Mm. but the heavily suggested homosexual is so weak that he needs a girl to 
come to his rescue, yeah. which is either incredibly homophobic yeah. or incredibly forward thinking. Yeah. Depends which lens you're looking through. Well, yeah, it really is about that gender lens, isn't it? And, yeah. And like, there's you know, that gender lens. There it is. Here it comes again. Um, <laughs> I think the lack yeah. of surrealism in this film is a little bit disappointing. Well, it just goes to the body stuff. Like, I think if you watch it just going, this kid is gay and Freddie is in some way exploiting his his nightmare, his trauma, his... Or his, his you know, internal fear of being outed. Absolutely. Like, as soon as he starts kissing Kim Myers, hilariously she's called, his tongue gets fucked up and turns into, like, long grey slithery thing and he has to run away to Grady's bedroom and is like, I need to stay here tonight. And you want to sleep with me? Yeah, I know. It's like, yes, Grady. Yes, I do. Take your shorts off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what um, you were doing. Yeah, it's... Uh... Anyway, should we talk about dream logic? Yes, let's talk about dream logic. Okay, what what's the bird? What happens with the bird? Oh, what is the bird? <laughs> <laughs> what is the bird? Why? Goes mental, explodes in fire. Even the dad says, animals don't just explode into flames for no reason. What? I just yes, don't... they do in this film. I just don't... That made... Yeah, that... That and the snake. The snake suddenly appears in the classroom and the teacher takes it out on Jesse, not whoever let the snake out of the cage. Tank, whatever it lives in. Tank? Oh, Tank. that... <laughs> You can't keep a snake in a cage. <laughs> just comes out. Just like Jesse. Like, like Jesse. Um, and the coach is murdered. Yeah. And he's murdered by... Being towel whipped. No, but he's, but he's murdered by by Jesse. Yeah. And is it a dream? Because the shower heads are moving and this, that and the other. But was it a dream or was it real? Because it was real because someone killed the coach and also it was real because jesse gets taken home by the cops and and they're like is this your son and he says yeah kind of looks like him <laughs> yeah um, so why did jesse go to the gay bar no one knows why did he do that he just you decides... know the barman who gives him a drink yeah that's bob shea uh, head of new line yeah he was in the first one as well there is no dream logic to this why is his power altered it's changed it's altered how yeah well it, it feels like a standalone film and it doesn't yeah. have much Apart from Freddie, apart from Freddie, it doesn't have much connection to the first one. The mm. third film, Dream Warriors, that is the sequel that should have happened. It's the sequel that enabled them to have a franchise. Yes. Because they weren't sure if they were going to do a third one. They went, New Line went to Wes Craven and were like, have you got any ideas? What do you want to do? <laughs> what should we do? What Wes? are we going to do with this fucking thing? We need to make some money because it was the house that Freddie built. You know, New Line had nothing by any, by their own admission. They said they have nothing. They, well, they, they just went from film to film to film. So yeah. back in the early days, they were um, distributing John Waters from Pink uh, Flamingos and on. Yeah. But they weren't big blockbusters that made them a shit ton no. of money. And if it wasn't for Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury, <laughs> if it wasn't for Freddie Krueger, then New Line wouldn't have become the the mini major powerhouse that it was, and yeah. it wouldn't have then got bought by Warner Brothers, which obviously led to Lord of the Rings trilogy. And they still went bankrupt. They still, no, yeah, they they went they, not bankrupt. They just lost a lot of money on the Golden Compass, and it got folded mm. into um, Warner Brothers MGM. and just. Didn't it? No, no, Warner Brothers. Oh, right. And Bob Shea was forced out. Mm. A shame. A shame. A shame. Yeah. Bod. Bod. Oh, I can't talk today. But yeah, Wes Craven was like, well, I've got this idea. It's about 
Um, it's set on a it's on a film set where they're trying to make a new nightmare film, and the, uh, Freddy comes out and kills all the actors. And New Line were like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" No, <laughs> uh, and so they decided to do this idea. Or avert, actually, Wes Craven's initial idea was teenagers are all going to the same place in America to co- to commit suicide, and nobody really knows why. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they're not committing suicide; it's Freddy. And somehow that blended into they're in a hospital and then they brought Nancy back and it all just kind of like rolled from that. And that's a genius idea to have her come in as a psychotherapist who specializes in dreams. (laughs) I want to know which school she went to. She's 20 years old. (laughs) She's an intern who suddenly has like a load of medical credentials you've never heard of. You say that, but there are kids who go to university at like 15. Well, she was 16 in the first film and it's only been four years. No, it's five years. Oh, well, I'm sorry. So she's 20. No, sorry, six years because number two was set five years after the first and this is one uh, year later. Was it? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. I didn't realize that. So in six years, oh. which is plausible she's... because she was a senior, wasn't she? Or at least a not She was like, I'm freshman. sure she was 16, 17. Because that's like GCSE age. Huh? That's GCSE age. Right. So two years later would be a-levels hmm. then she might have skipped the gap year <laughs> and gone straight to uni which is three years uh-huh. so it's plausible that she could be being an intern Some at a place specializing in dreams i guess so but it just seemed a bit tenuous to me well and also university she, logic works i do love heather langkamp but she just seemed like she was asleep for the entire film really i felt that she just didn't want to be there no i thought she was quite actively involved <laughs> she had Tick a contract and everything <laughs> When I was when I was younger, I loved the first one, the third one, yeah. and the new one. So all three Nancy ones were my my, my nightmares, basically. Really, they were the three I loved. And so, so, how old were you? Because the new one, do you mean? Oh, do you mean new uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare? Yeah, <coughs> I thought you meant the remake. No, <laughs> I was about to slap you there. <laughs> um, because I loved Nancy, and I thought Nancy was a great character. But then watching it again, watching this one again, I was just a bit like Nancy. I know you think you're trying, but I feel like your heart's not in it, love. <laughs> Must do better. <laughs> yeah. No Christmas bonus for you this year, Nancy. Yeah. I do feel that with with these films, especially up to this point, all the secondary characters are just that, characters. Not yeah. secondary, they are characters. Whereas in Halloween and, and the Jason films, they're just placeholders. They're just bodies that can be killed because that's what those films are about. So Glenn, played by Johnny Depp, was a fully realised character. Rod, who gets killed with the bedsheet, fully realised character. Tina as well. Jesse's mates and enemies. And all the characters in this one Mm. are fully realised characters with their own idiosyncrasies, their own personalities. Yeah, I would argue it's the last time the franchise did that, though. Because by the time you get to number five... They've literally gone, we need a brunette, we need a nerdy guy, we need a black girl. <laughs> yes. that's, that's what they ended up resorting <laughs> yeah. to. Um, but yeah, with, yeah this one, with this one, they definitely were like, who are these kids? What can their traumas be? What can their nightmares be? And they kind of ran with it. There is some fucking brilliant elements to Dream yeah. Warriors. Yeah. There's the idea with the puppets, because that is essentially what Freddy does. He is like an evil puppeteer and he's just taken it to the nth degree mm-hmm. in this film, literally with the, the veins and, and everything. The TV arms, 
the snake. It's prime time, bitch. <laughs> Welcome to prime time. <laughs> the slutty nurse. That line, actually, Robert England is so proud that that was his line. Yes. He'll tell you every 10 seconds. That was my line. (laughs) That was my line. That was my line. Actually, Wes said, that was my line. Why does he sound like... um, Quentin Tarantino? (laughs) 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 Robert England today was paid by the role of Quentin Tarantino. The sucking needle wounds and the soles of, of the faces in Freddy's body. Yeah. These are really cool elements that take what we know from the first film and build on it. It wasn't interested in in revising anything. It wasn't interested in wiping it clean and trying to be its own thing. This is all about dreams. This is all about teenagers being in an institution where they have to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. They are basically forced to go to sleep because lights out at 10. Yeah. It's not about and high school again. Well. And yeah, they're drugged. Yeah. And it's not about high school. Yeah. It's, it's more moving into the adult element of that world. So much yeah. so that we almost don't go back to the house. I mean, we don't go back to the house in the real world. No. Only in the dream world. Yeah. I think that's what I loved about it so much as a teenager because it felt like a grown-up kind of film, apart from the wizard guy. Um, but this, this film enabled them to have a franchise because it's not... The first two were overtly horror whereas this is like a cheesy fantasy comedy like it's it's got one toe still in the horror realm obviously with all the deaths just the one toe but i think this is this is like fantasy comedy and they they wanted that that's what they wanted it to be i don't i don't know if it's i don't remember any funny bits but the the tone is definitely more 80s spielbergian adventure yeah compared to the absolute mind fuck that is Wes Craven's original yeah it's like Chuck Russell who directed it this was his directorial debut by the way it's crazy I think a lot of them their directorial yeah. debut was an Elm Street film because they could pay them like 20 bucks yeah and it's like you're gonna get a credit okay but they'll probably get a back end and these films were mm. I mean they were literally farting money in those yeah. days <laughs> but Chuck Russell said I want to make a fun Freddy and so they actually they cement the rules of the franchise in this film, I would say. Well, they they elaborate on the world. They introduce the idea of a dream world. They introduce the idea of powers. You know, Kristen has this power to bring people into her dreams. Patricia, Patricia Arquette. In her, in her debut as well. Yes. And with the music to this film was done by Angelo Baldamenti, mm. who was David Lynch's go-to oh. guy. So Patricia Arquette and him would be reunited 10 years later yeah. in Lost Highway. Oh, wow. She doesn't do anything now, does she? It's a terrible character. I, I, what you were saying about everyone being characters, I actually disagree because I think that Kristen, Kirsten, whatever her name is, she... <laughs> whatever you, her name is. I, I still have no idea who she is. She's like this spoiled brat who her mum literally says, I've taken your credit card away. Underlay, underlay. Yeah, and it's like, I don't understand who she really is apart from she has this power to drag people into her dreams. Who um, controls the dream nightmare world? Well, that's what I want to know because it all... Adding all this stuff in actually makes it seem like a smaller world and it makes it seem stupider. Um, stupider. Stupider. Because it's like, are they all sharing the same space? Like when you go into a, into a dream, yeah. are you all going to the same place? Because that's what it seems to be saying to us. The, the way I see it is, Freddy is clearly incredibly powerful. Hmm. Is it a case that he contr- he is like the king of that dream world? Is he putting the dreams into their heads which is why Mm. they can be so connected 
Or when you dream, do you go into that one space and then he just happens to be in control? Yeah. So who is causing the the dreams? If it's a case that, you know, you dream and you go to a dream world, it must be a, a connected realm because Freddy has so much control in, in the realm. If it's multiple realms, are there multiple Freddies? Mm. Well, this is that's why I don't really buy the whole dream world thing because it invites far too many questions that you don't really want answered because it would be boring anyway. Like I always thought that he was Freddie was entering your subconscious, like he was. It wasn't you going into a fantasy dreamland. It was you falling unconscious, which removes all of your defenses which is when freddy kind of sneaks in that's what i thought it was so when they started doing dream world and all that stuff i was like this is actually really quite silly and like <laughs> you're so snobby i know <laughs> looking down upon it <laughs> what does this film say about kids who are born from rape because this huh? is when we learned that oh yeah that he was actually a child molester but not just that. Oh, that no. We learned that his He's mother was raped maniacs. by a thousand maniacs. Yeah. Which and is... obviously only one of them could have been the father. Yeah. Which clearly is the case when we get to another film and there's an inmate who looks like Robert England. Played by Robert England. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that might be him. Possibly. So, yeah. That is, that's an interesting comment because there is a psychosexual theme to the films. And it, oh, it, just a little bit. Yeah. It's so it, phallic. I mean, the big fingers... Yeah. It's like a hand of dick. That big worm, the Freddy worm. The Freddy worm, yes, that eats her up. and <laughs> You know, that, that was literally designed, and I mean literally this time, to resemble a penis. Like, yes. the, the design guy was told, make a giant penis. But they had to discolour it. They coloured it in slime before they shot it, because they got it, on the, got it on set and they were like, this it looks, looks like too much dick. like a penis. <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't positive about people born from rape. No. And it's not the person's fault. You know, no one chooses to be born as a result of rape. Yeah. But it's basically saying that the trauma of being uh, molested by a thousand maniacs means that your child is going to be a mental. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing is it does invite some kind of sympathy for the monster, which is interesting, but also just troubling as well. But that was there from the very start because we were asked to consider why is freddy doing this yeah he's doing it because he wants revenge on the parents who wanted revenge on him <laughs> and now we're being given the reason why he did this yeah because but the number number six film six completely fucks that up because it's like there's a flashback scene where he's trying to explain to his daughter why he kills people and basically he says I'm killing children because your parents killed me for killing children. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's so stupid. Whose story is this third film? It's everybody's because it's an ensemble. It starts out being Kristen. Kirsten. What's her name? Kirsten or Kristen? I think it's Kristen. Kristen. It starts out being hers. Then Nancy comes in. And then you start to um, learn more about the secondary characters. So it's not really... Kirsten's and it's not Nancy's it's kind of everybody's I think ultimately it is Nancy's and I mm. think I think this is her chance to redeem herself she couldn't save her friends yeah in the first film she could only save herself mm. and here this is completely flipped yeah she dies spoilers she dies in quite an un, in quite a boring way yeah I, I, I thought they could have given her a bit of a 
a better death. It reminds me of a Wonder Woman thing, which I'll come mm. on to in a second. But she she dies in order to save the remaining kids. Mm-hmm. Joey, Kincaid, Kirsten, and one of the other ones. <laughs> I it's think just the, those three, isn't it? Did the wizard kid not die? I mean, yeah, did, he's dead. Is he dead? Okay. And he's the one death I felt really bad about because he's the one who's most childlike. Like, even though he was just like a fucking wizard, his wizard cape was ridiculous. And <laughs> yeah. you know that actually he was meant to like go into this swirling dragon world and all this kind of stuff. Uh, budgetary reasons. And they were like, we're just no, going to stab no. you in the chest, love. So even though he was really fucking annoying and I kind of thought he was really stupid, um, he his death was really sad because it was like, you actually are just a little kid and Freddy's just killed you. It's a shame when they don't give weight to someone's death. You know, Christ is on Infinite Earths. Christ? Christ. <laughs> Have you met my friend Christ on Earth? Uh, Crisis on Internet. Crisis. Internet Earth. <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earths was a comic book series in the 80s. Yes. Um, DC, DC were taking all of their multiverses and collapsing it into one. So they were killing off a lot of their characters because they had multiple versions. Wonder Woman's death was one panel. Wow. In long shot. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. They gave her no weight whatsoever. Maybe at the time she wasn't as popular as she is now obviously now we've got was it pre the tv series uh no the tv series was the 70s but yeah back in those days you could watch a tv series completely separate to Mm. the comic books okay they had no weight um it just reminds me of that nancy's death in this wasn't worthy of who she was and what she meant to freddie and in fact the first time they met i felt there could have been more build-up it could have been a case of halloween h2o Style. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Freddie obviously can't get the keys because his fingers are in the way. And then <laughs> Laurie Stroud's at the window and he's like, who are you? I'm in the wrong franchise. <laughs> it did need that. It needed that recognition, didn't it? It did. Because it was just when he was as, as, as the big snake. I just felt it wasn't as punchy as enough. Yeah. It wasn't punchy enough. But this third film kicks off this whole dream thread with curse Kristen yeah. with Kristen it suddenly becomes like her story mm. in the same way that the Friday the 13th film suddenly became about this guy called Tommy mm-hmm. so in part four directed by Rennie Harlan who went on to do Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger and Deep Blue Sea and Driven and The Long Kiss Goodnight meaning that he's never made a decent <laughs> film in his life <laughs> really hasn't he really hasn't no. he's kind of the you know a film might come out in the cinema, but he was definitely a bargain basement yeah. guy. He was like the Steven Seagal of directors. The franchise moves into trying to be very, very mainstream. It's almost like having its cake and eating it too. It's trying to be very mainstream, but still trying to be quite schlocky. And it's at this point that Freddy becomes something very vastly different. Yeah. And arguably less interesting like he turned into a cartoon character it's like yeah it's like looney tunes style horror basically a hundred percent where he's not he's not so much there to kill you as just to kind of entertain himself and thereby try to entertain you like he starts cackling a lot more like everything he becomes like arnold schwarzenegger he, he becomes like the pun machine yeah and, and it's fine is... in this one in this one it's actually pretty good but by the time you get to number five you're a bit like, have they not run out of idioms yet? Because, uh, you know, oh, he's on a bike, therefore, oh, he's got the need for speed. It's like, oh, fuck <laughs> off. Like, or with the, the remote control. But, but, I mean, it really pissed me off that 
in the first thing they do in this fourth installment is kill off the people who survived the third. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a proper, it's like a massive relay race. It's like Nancy survived the first one, so she can't survive the third one. Kristen survived the third one, so she can't survive the fourth one. Mm. They actually recast Kristen anyway, so it didn't really feel like yeah. <laughs> the character really died. Well, the, the character did die. But do you know, the what, way do you know that... what the actress is called? Uh, no. The new Kristen. She's called Tuesday Night with a K. <laughs> Her name is Tuesday Night? <laughs> yes. They spot Tuesday with a K. Tuesday Night. And she did the song Running From a Nightmare on the opening credits. That was her. <sighs> she must have been on Warner Brothers Records or something. Yeah. The dog pissing to bring Freddy back is ridiculous. It's brilliantly stupid. But it's only as stupid as part three introduces, like, they start to expand the mythology. So they say, one of the characters says, they burned him to death in his boiler room and they add, and they hid the remains, which is a fact that we didn't have before. And they've added that fact into number three. But then they hid the remains in a car boot in a scrapyard. <laughs> like, how shoddy are these parents? They've got the knives in the basement. They've well, surely you want to get away with it. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is like the MTV nightmare. Oh, 100%. Like, I've even got that written in my notes. It's oh, circled. Yeah. I was like, does this film suffer from trying to compete with contemporary 80s. It's interesting how they do... These films really do reflect the culture of that time. They really do, yeah. Um, so, but in a really cynical way. Yeah, like, you know, video games come into episode six. Yes. What happens in number five that's kind of culture I can't remember now. It's comic books in number five. Yes, although um, I do like that section. Mm. But in this one, Rick is essentially an amalgamation of Ferris Bueller... Who's Rick? Uh, the, the lead hot guy. Oh, the karate dude. Yes. Right. So yeah, he is a amalgamation of Ferris Bueller, Christian Slater in both Pump Up the Volume and Heathers. <laughs> yeah. And also Daniel Sun from Karate Kid. Yes. Yeah, for no apparent reason, apart from um, Karate Kid was huge at the time. And so that... But that, that doesn't mean you need to then think, well, fuck all our dream shit and mm. fuck all our way of doing things. Let's just go for what we know will work because anyone's going to go see this shit. An invisible fight. In invisible, a, fucking in a invisible do- fight. It's called a dungeon. The whole thing just felt, it kind of had the stylish feel of like the Brat Pack or John mm. Hughes. But I preferred the way number four looks visually than number three because watching number three this time, it looked so grey and flat. It didn't feel um, rich. It felt a bit cheap, like a TV oh, very, film. Yeah, very very enclosed, especially yeah. in that corridor scene. I think that comes down to Rennie Harlem yeah. being wanting to play with the Hollywood big boys because mm-hmm. he would go on to do big, big films. Well, I mean, this film is the highest, was the highest grossing entry in the franchise until Freddy vs. Jason by a long, long, long really? way. Like it took over like a hundred and something million. Some of the effects in this film are, are astounding. That flying into the cinema screen was done, mm. was done so fucking well. And it's yeah. 31 years and it doesn't look ropey. Yeah, it looks amazing. The only thing that, that was disappointing about that was that I thought we were going to have a really cool black and white sequence. And then the second she's in the film, it goes to colour. Yeah. Because obviously, black and white's rubbish and like so boring. <laughs> so they had to get rid of but that. But the plan is similar to part two. He needs an avatar in the real world. Yeah. It does. The film looks amazing. There's a great overhead shot of Kristen in her bedroom and it starts to spiral round and round as she starts to yes, fall asleep. And yes. it's all just a bit weird. You Although her mum... glasses off there. <laughs> <laughs> her mum is the worst horror movie mum in the world. Underlay, underlay. Like in the third one, she's like, Kristen, we went over this in therapy. And it's like, 
Not only did she hospitalize her daughter in the, the third <laughs> film, then when all her friends are dying like a few months later, she starts drugging her at the dinner table. She's oh, like yes. the worst mother ever. <laughs> She's awful. I th- There was a great line that said, make evil see itself literally. And I thought, I thought the film was going to go a bit deeper than it did. I thought yeah. that... I thought they were going to try and make Freddie acknowledge his sins and kind of realize what he was doing and, and what he was doing was, was completely pointless. It was futile, but they don't go. <laughs> he just looked in a mirror. Yeah. They didn't go there. Just, I'm hideous. Just, and he must've seen himself. Yeah. But isn't this the film where all the, the spirits start? No, is that the fifth one? When he like gets vanquished like an arm comes out of his head and grabs onto a banister. That's and, the fifth one. Because uh, that's, that's the fifth awesome. one. That that's the one where they've got all the stairways and the nuns there, the mum. Oh, yeah. But Elm Street, that first Elm Street is pretty deep. The first film? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it is pretty deep, definitely compared to the rest. But even on its own, it is a pretty deep philosophical experience. And I thought yeah. they missed an opportunity of this one to, to, to go back to that kind of depth. Well... This film, more than any of them, I think that this film falls apart. And I think there was like a writer's strike going on and there was, they were rushing to get the film made and it really just feels so episodic. It literally, the first 20 minutes are actually quite strong, even though Tuesday Night is a terrible actress. The first 20 minutes are quite strong. There's like quite a, a good subtle hint of Alice's dad being a drunk. He's drinking a Bloody Mary in the morning. Rick, Rick is like, it's a void all contact day to try to get away from the dad. But as soon as those those original three are killed, the whole film starts to fall apart. It becomes just a series of set pieces where Freddy's doing stuff. But that's what that's what five, yeah. six. So that's what four, five, and six. The whole of them feel like. Yeah, absolutely. It became although number five does feel like a dream more, child. It feels like even though it's not very good, it's it's more coherently a self-contained story. Whereas this fourth one just becomes. Bam, bam, bam. Here's some stuff. Um, even though they introduced some really quite fun things like Alice's daydreaming, um, which gives you like quite an interesting insight into her thought process as a character mm. and you see how she's reacting to certain situations, that's abandoned. Um, <laughs> and then her whole transformation from dowdy Carrie White wannabe in those awful long skirts and like chunky cardigans... And she transforms into like a badass fighter, which is like a yes. really cool idea. Although shot from behind, that's yeah. not her with the nunchucks. No, oh yeah, no. well, clearly. She's far too broad. But that is actually quite a fun montage where she's in front of the mirror and she's like looking at the pictures. Oh, and, it's a, yeah, it's a pure know, 80s montage. Yeah, and... which is always going to be fun. But they, they don't follow through on it. No, they don't. And there's that fun time loop moment as well, where she's like, I'll drive. And they jump yes. in the van and yeah, it keeps I mean, going around. Things like that. Little little isolated moments, absolutely phenomenal, but it doesn't fit together no. as, as a cohesive whole. And, and Dream Child, I would say Dream Child's actually probably better than uh, Dream Master. Yeah, because it actually... It, it, so part five is, is better because it's trying to say something. It has a real story. Yes. It has a beginning, middle and end, whereas number four is an absolute... It's a montage movie. It's such a hodgepodge. And it's got some cool stuff, but it doesn't know what it wants to actually do. In part five, it's, it's horrendous when that baby is born. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely horrendous. Makes no sense because no. Freddy wasn't born burnt. No. And it's a boy! It's, oh, that's the worst. He always, 
his delivery is always say something with a big finish. <laughs> He's like a children's entertainer. <laughs> yeah, it's not subtle and. But yeah, that, that line ruins that entire sequence because it is really cool. The genius idea that unborn babies are dreaming and that is what's causing all the fucked upness in this film mm. is a genius idea. It's is absolutely... It? Yeah, it's brilliant. I don't, do babies dream? Well, in this, this film, they are purporting <laughs> that they do. Yeah, okay. Whose child was it? Was it Freddie's child? The, she was pregnant, so who yeah. was the father? The really hot guy, Dan, who dies on the motorcycle. Oh, yes. The, um, what do they call him? Like Mr. McJock or something. <laughs> like, Mr. McJock. Where is he? Where is he? I've got a note on what they called him because it was really funny. Oh, he's a major league hunk. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. McJock. <laughs> Clearly mine was better, but yeah. So he's the dad. And then there's that really weird soap opera scene where he's dead and his parents come to Alice's house. To take the baby. And his mom keeps referring to her husband as Mr. Jordan. <laughs> but he's not called Jordan. In this number four, he's called Dan Gordon. So she can't even get her husband's name right. Demanding they don't the, baby. the baby. And it's like, she's just lost her boyfriend. She's literally been pregnant for about two weeks. And you don't think that she's going to be able to raise the baby in nine months time. Get the well, fuck they, out of my house. They just want to keep hold of their son. They want a bit of their son. That baby yeah. is literally made out of their son's sperm. <laughs> That's how babies are made. Is that all it's made out of? We're all made of sperm. <laughs> um, it's all just so far removed. As much as, I, as, as much as I like the baby thing and the nuns at the end, mm. the, the staircases and all that, it's all so far removed from part one in this film. Particularly, you could take Freddy Krueger out yeah. and put in any unnamed monster. You could put Jason in there. You could put Michael in there. You could take the Wishmaster or, yeah, or Leatherface or Candyman. And it would still work beat for beat for beat. Yeah. Nothing in this film has any resemblance or connection apart from the name Freddy Krueger to Elm Street. Yeah. I don't even think we actually go to Elm Street in this one. I don't mm. think we do. Does she drive? Is that when Alice gets stuck in the loop? She's driving to Elm Street, and when she gets the house, that's when it restarts. Whose house is that? I can't remember now. I don't know. Why don't they just tell? She's the going to save somebody. Down. But yeah, this is this is where it really starts to get like. So num- number four had the the death with the girl getting turned into a cockroach, and that yes. that just seemed to kind of open the floodgates for basically anything is going to happen to these people. They jump in the shark. So it like the the girl who gets stuffed with food is is properly like Mister Creosote from Monty Python. Wafathine, um, yeah, and then like the whole transforming into a bike stuff. Um, Freddie r- riding on a on a skateboard. While, oh. in, while, in, while in a comic. <laughs> he goes into a comic. It's just so ridiculous. It is so far removed. It, 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 I can understand why with the next one, they wanted to just bring it, just shoot it in the head. Yeah. Just bring it to a close. Like, well, there's a line in number six where one of the therapists says, I'm so tired of all this shit. Yes. And it was like, ha ha, finally, someone who <laughs> feels the same way we do. They introduced Cougar's mum. Amanda. Amanda Kruger. But then she doesn't do anything. She just walks down the flight of stairs and looking, fucks off. Looking a bit somber. Well, don't they, doesn't she release her in the fifth one? Oh, which one are we talking about now? The sixth one? The fifth one. Right. The fifth one. So at the end, with all the, like, the labyrinth stairs. Oh, yeah, the Asher thing. 
Yeah. So, which is stolen from Labyrinth as well. Which is stolen from a very famous painting. Yeah. Painter, yeah. Bowden. Bowden. I was, da- I was David Bowie for a second. <laughs> the thing is about No, David you weren't. Bowie. You were Tony Curtis. <laughs> Tony Curtis. But all she does is walk down the flight of stairs. If you're going to introduce a character that is so important to the Elm Street mythos and the backstory, yeah. get her to do something more than walk. Yeah. Like have her actually have a discussion with Freddy about how he shouldn't really kill people. <laughs> even if that, he maybe, is the son of a Maybe she could be the one to vanquish him and yeah. do the final act. It doesn't have to be old cardigan girl. Yeah. And also this is where the franchise really, really starts to steal from itself. So uh, Alice literally births Freddy at the end of this one like she drags him out of her own body there's like this weird thing where they're attached and they're wrestling with each other oh yes and that's like that's just come straight from number two it's like we're really just not yes we have no idea what we're doing anymore we're just making these films because they make money and we need to keep Robert England in work kind of thing <laughs> I mean he's not shy for work he's yeah he constantly works still now yeah yeah one of the hardest working actors in Hollywood it's just really interesting to see how these films are clearly made by committee. Nobody really knows exactly what they're doing. Nobody knows what is good about the story to begin with. Yeah. And nobody knows how to make Freddy interesting and anywhere remotely like a horror villain. Like they don't, he's well, not the, a horror villain anymore. The problem is, the problem is they have themes that they want to explore. This one is clearly about abortion. Yeah. And well, they have that discussion. Don't where they? do they stand on it? Are they pro-choice? Are they pro-life? What about in the cases of rape? Yeah. But the problem is they don't follow through that discussion. They don't follow through the themes because they have to fall back into the old trap of, well, we need Freddie to do something like this because we know audiences like to see this. So we have to have this. Yeah. Even if it means undermining the very serious point that we want to make. Yeah. Whether a, uh, an Elm Street film is the right format or the right platform to have these discussions is debatable. I will argue that yes, it is because if you're going to have discussions, you have discussions everywhere. Absolutely. You don't just wait until, you know, it's a super serious film. Do it when people are least expecting it. Do it in popular entertainment. Exactly. Yes. But the problem is this film was an absolute rush job. The director came on board on the 14th of February and the film was released in August. <laughs> So, yeah, it was an absolute fucking rush job. What's nice about the sixth one, uh-huh. Fred, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, is it, that Rachel Talalay, who was one of the producers, got to step up and be a director. Yeah. First female director in the franchise. Yeah. And she'd been there the whole way. The whole way. You know, she'd been producing all of them, really. Yes. Um, and this one actually has a really cool concept at the start 10 years from now there's only one teenager left yeah but that's done with pretty quickly and it has no relevance to the actual story that's the film i want to see yeah it, yeah that, that's exactly what tom said my boyfriend we were watching it he was like that's such a great idea have a ghost town freddie has turned it into a ghost town what are we going to do how you know how is freddie going to survive and he you know there is the idea that he wants um john doe to draw in teenagers to be his prey but it's does freddy not... not exist without their fear well yeah exactly yeah which is that's the... how nancy vanquishes him in the first film yeah yeah so if he's only got one kid left he's got to work pretty damn hard mm. to actually exist actually exist yeah yeah 
Yeah, and it is an interesting idea. It doesn't make any sense in this film. Like, when they go to Springwood, the Freddy rhyme is written randomly all over the town for no particular reason. There's a crazy teacher in an empty classroom for no particular reason. Roseanne and Tom Arnold for Roseanne no reason. Roseanne turns up. I know. <laughs> and Tom Arnold. No reason. Yeah. And then... The, Although she is quite scary now. She is terrifying. <laughs> Her views are, shall we say, controversial. Um, and then there's... And then John Doe suddenly goes... Freddie had a kid, which is a revelation that is dropped with the weight of a pin. It, just, <laughs> it makes no impact whatsoever. It's as much weight as when Nancy sees him for the first time again in the third <laughs> yeah. film. It's like, oh, well, Carrot, I guess that's where the plot's going. We, we can't be asked to film these scenes. We'll just go to this one. Yeah. The surrealism makes a return, and I think it is some of the best surrealism since the first film. Oh, it's just painful, though. That, that opening sequence is the stupidest one they've done so far is Freddy riding a broomstick as the Wicked Witch, cackling. (laughs) Terrible. For some reason, the guy is in the the house from The Wizard of Oz and he crashes down in Springwood. Yeah. Stupid. Um, They're using Mazorsky's A Night on Bear Mountain on the score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But like fucking it up. That was lovely. Um, Bob Shea is cameoing cameoing now as a theatre attendant. Yeah. It's just all like, you can feel them using Freddy's claws like digging them in and just desperate you, to... you can feel them taking bits that weren't allowed to be in the other films yeah. coupling together and go right now we have a movie let's do these bits that we've always wanted to do but that being said i watched this one quite a lot oh, as a kid God. okay um so i have a bit of an affinity to it okay i do like the surrealism i do um it seems to have more co- cohesion than some of the other ones, the actual surrealism, yeah. which is weird because surrealism isn't meant to have cohesion. Yeah. But if you watch a David Lynch film, it's not just randomly placed together. There is some sort of internal logic, uh, yeah. logic there. The idea that this franchise will always allow the other popular things to infiltrate into it. Clearly, Twin Peaks has been a massive, massive <laughs> influence on this. Yeah. Twin Peaks is a surrealist mystery. This is a surrealist mystery that references Twin Peaks. Yeah, it does. I just, I felt embarrassed for everybody watching this film. Half an hour in, I was like, this is painful. Like, they just couldn't be bothered to to, to actually have it make any kind of, like, so... John Doe starts talking to his therapist about this dream that he had. Yeah. He's like, I was in a room in a house with a little girl and the therapist, who we find out is Freddie's daughter, is like, wait, oh, I've had a dream about being in a house within a room with a little girl. <laughs> Clearly, we've had the same dream. And it's like, I'm sorry, where were the specific details that made you come to that conclusion? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but is the whole thing a dream? I don't care anymore. I just, <laughs> I was so tired. I was so tired by the time we got to this one. I just didn't care. The dream logic doesn't make sense in this film. No, it really doesn't. So Spencer dies in the dream world, but he also dies in the real world. He's falling down the stairs, but then he's plummeting in, in a hellhole, which is in the dream world. Yeah. But actually, that also happens in number four. Which also doesn't adhere when, to dream logic. No, when Kincaid is killed in the scrapyard. Yes. He doesn't bleed or anything, hasn't a wound or anything in the real world. He's just dead. It just doesn't... Did he get stabbed in there? He gets stabbed in the stomach by Freddy right. with his knife, with his knife claw. And in the real world, nothing happens to him. He's just dead. It's so lazy. And also in this, in number six, when people dream, they now disappear. 
Like they're like, where's that stoner dude? We can't find him anywhere. Oh, he's gone asleep. Oh, he's asleep now. He's gone. <laughs> what? I'm, I don't understand. What do you mean he's gone? I think your delivery is better than theirs. Oh. I did find John Ho. John Ho. I did find John Doe hot. Did you? Yeah. And watching it this time as well. I used to find him hot back in the day. So there's still a little bit of that hotness now. But yeah, he's a good looking lad. Yeah. Did you find the Freddie and daughter aspect kind of touching? <laughs> in what kind Not of in that way? way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I was meant to. But I think this, this film really tried to up the sympathy for Freddie. Do you think that was their intention? I think so. Because think... it's hard to ask people to be sympathetic towards a child molester. Yeah, I know. This is not like The Woodsman. This is not a Sunday night drama. This is... <laughs> This is a exploitation horror film. Yeah, but he's a fantasy child molester. It's different. <laughs> True. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think... Um, did I find it touching? No, not really, because it's Freddy Krueger. No. I found it had no weight. No, it was If they nothing. had threaded this yeah. carefully and consistently for a couple of films, and then suddenly, boom, we come into contact with the daughter that we've heard about in the previous film or the film mm. before that, then suddenly they have this... It had no weight. Yeah, that's why the whole Freddy had a kid thing just doesn't have any impact whatsoever because it's like, oh, all right, I suppose Freddy had a kid then. It was interesting to see who Freddy was before Elm Street, Mm. before he did his crimes, before he was murdered by the parents of Elm Street. Mm. But it just wasn't, it wasn't done, it wasn't done well enough. It wasn't, it just wasn't done well enough at all. Yeah. And even the appearance of Alice Cooper wasn't enough to save it for me. Who I didn't even notice. It started off as a surreal film and it just became more of what we've seen before. Yeah, and it and it did like funny deaths, like ironically funny deaths with the deaf guy being um, deafened to death. <laughs> deafened to death, Ian McKellen. Or John Doe falling out the sky and landing on a bed of nails that Freddie had put there like Wiley Coyote. Yeah, but also that felt tonally so completely... It was actually really upsetting to see that because the film had gone so far away from horror and people dying in horrific ways that then suddenly someone being impaled like that felt like it was in the wrong film. Yeah. It felt like, oh, no, I'm watching this really silly kind of cartoony thing over here, actually. I don't want to watch someone getting impaled to death. But that is quite a cartoony way to die. Oh, yeah, it is. But my highlight for this film, the best bit of the entire film is Johnny Depp appearing for roughly 30 seconds explaining how to crack an egg or something. This is your, this is your brain. This is your brain yes, on eggs. Yes, something yes, like yes, that. yes. Yeah. On drugs, yeah. I, um, I, I quite like the sequence when John Doe is trying to not get off the bed, but something will always get him off the bed. Fire or this, that and the other. Yeah. That loop. Yeah. I always remember thinking, A, he looks really hot in that scene, but really ingenious that's the surrealist stuff that i really really like mm-hmm. looping and you know loops happen in dreams and for no reason we keep looping in dreams and we i mean you have this recurring dream where the, the where you're chasing me down the street naked uh, that wasn't a dream <laughs> additional to that yeah. when all the charmed girls get back together yes i do <laughs> it won't stop and every time i'm like finally it's real and it never is if we look at the entire series the first one is clearly Nothing comes without the first film. But my ultimate favourite is New Nightmare. Hands down. It is dark. It is deconstructive. It is meta. 
And it's the one that I watched the most back in the day. Same. I think it's phenomenal. And I, and I unsurprisingly, I prefer it to Scream. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, 10-year anniversary was coming up. Rob, Bob Shea came over to Wes Craven and was like, look, 10-year anniversary, what have you got? And Wes Craven was like, oh, I've got this idea. It's about um, they're trying to make the new Elm Street film and then all the actors get killed. And he's like, <laughs> brilliant, we'll do it. Yeah, it's like, I pitched this to you seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a clever idea. and It's, it's so done, clever. It's done so well because the first 20 minutes, you're not told... This isn't Nancy, guys. This is actually Heather Lancaster, the real yeah. Heather. It's like you're just given this world, and slowly over the first twenty minutes, half an hour, you realise that's actually meant to be Heather Langenkamp, the actress. Mm. This is the this is Hollywood. This is the real world. It's such an ingenious way of returning a real sense of peril to the universe and flipping the whole idea again in a way that we haven't seen since the third one, where that started to introduce rules that then ended up the franchise it buried the franchise essentially but also it says something it's i mean it's not just an interesting film it's not just a, a you know a, a a decent sort of slasher fantasy horror it actually says something about the series yeah. and the effect that it had on the real life people in it the director the studio head the actress mm. all the while saying something about horror films as well mm-hmm. scream the, the Scream franchise is more about not lampooning, but deconstructing this, the, the the genre and the subgenre. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is just specifically about Elm Street mm. and the effect that it's had on their lives mm. and the phenomenon that it became from its quite humble beginnings. Yeah. It's still, it's interesting because it's still kind of fantastical, but it just feels like like a grown-up horror film. Mm. Like the third act is slightly separate, but the first hour or so of the film feel like, you know, a proper, a, a serious film, almost a drama that actually is commenting on the state of horror. It comments on clearly the state of the franchise. Like the driver says, oh, the first was the best. Fandom. Which is, yeah. And then like the talk show section where Heather Langkamp appears on a talk show and Robert England bursts out as Freddy. And that was all inspired by Wes Craven's own experiences. Like yes. He went on a talk show with Robert England and 10-year-olds were going, Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. <laughs> yeah. um, and meanwhile, Heather Langenkamp's admittedly fictional child, Dylan, um, is watching Nightmare on Elm Street mm. and the film constantly is demanding... You know, asking, have you shown your son this film? You know, what other tra- what trauma can come out of him watching the film? And it turns out the the trauma that he's experiencing isn't because he watched a film. It's because there's this actual physical evil that is trying to get him. And that um, evil is Freddy. It manifests in itself as Freddy. And Freddy is frightening again. It's really scary in this one. He's he's <clears throat> he's had a revised look. He's darker he's more evil he's chunkier mm-hmm. the red is deeper the, well, the, the slight design of the face mm-hmm. it, it's more like skin grafty and less pizzery yeah he's got a big coat on he's got big boots he's bigger he's got a a, a more evil he's got leather bigger, trousers leather trousers <laughs> he's very gay he's, <laughs> he's got the big old glove he just seems more it's almost like Uber Freddy. Mm. There's none of the jokes. He doesn't make quips. He might well, it's say- not so much that. It's not 
Like, he still says things like, hey, Milo, have you ever skinned a cat? Or do you want to play skin the cat? Like, it's, that is still kind of a joke. But he's not going, hey, 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 hey. do you yes, want to send me skin a cat? <laughs> I'm so funny. <laughs> like, that's what he does every it's other so time. Funny. So funny. It's so funny, Freddie. <laughs> I can't even. Yeah. So he, he's, um, he's allowed to crack jokes without But I didn't feel they were jokes. Like, I felt that mm. they, it was pure taunting it was almost yeah, like yeah, yeah. like you know what what the the cappers did to uh the the inmates uh auschwitz or oh my god that but that that level of i've got all the power now yeah. i'm gonna taunt you yeah it wasn't a uh you know he he wasn't being pop culture freddy he was being real world freddy because that's essentially what it is mm. it's often said that this is completely separate to the elm street franchise but the story dictates that it's not. Mm. The story dictates that Freddy is something that has to be contained within a story. And if there isn't a story, then Freddy's going to try and get out. Yeah. In various scary ways. Yeah. And also it's fun because um, they've got the whole earthquake thing happening as well. That was fun. Yeah, that earthquake. No, because the thing that is fun about that <laughs> is that in the first film, in the first 20 minutes, Tina is says... Oh, that you don't. Do you think that there's going to be an earthquake because we keep having nightmares, and normally earthquakes happen after you've had nightmares? Ah. So it's like a really fun little way that they've tied them together there. You know those shots of broken bridges and stuff. Mm. They were real. Yeah. The, the, the film was shooting at the same time as the Northridge earthquake. So yeah. Wes just said, "Let's just send the second unit out." It's like reality cubed somehow. It's like reality. Well, it was new... like it was like the fantasy world coming into the fictional yeah. world, which is what the film is about. Yeah. So so weird. I love the moment where Wes is stood by his computer and then you, you know, we get a chance to read the computer and you realize that the scene that he's just written is the one that's just happened. Yeah, yeah, so cool. I love all that meta, that kind of blending. But it's not even, it's kind of like the never ending story is what I kept thinking of. I haven't seen that. I just remember oh. a horse dying in mud. It's, well, it's this kid in the real world reading a book that we then see happening as he's reading. Yes. And the the book becomes aware of the kid reading the book and he actually ends up saving the... the Spoilers! The end for of a 35-year-old film. Yeah. Um, he's got that, that very clever weaving of reality and fiction. And like, the thing that makes this so great is it has fun with that, what you know is kind of like the tropes. So there's a father-daughter chat in New Nightmare. Yes. Where they're not even father and daughter. They're just actors who happen to play father and daughter together. No, but the, the two worlds, the, the dream Freddy world and the reality real world has started to blend in quite mm. a, a overbearing manner to the point where um, John Saxon, who played her dad in the first and the third film, came back as, in this film, John Saxon. Yeah. But then... Becomes... He, he suddenly just becomes her dad again. Yeah. And there's a point where she goes, I love you, daddy. Mm -hmm. After he goes, I'm your dad or something keeps, like that. He's like, why are you calling me Nancy? Yes. Does, is that Heather? I mean, why does she say, why does she just suddenly submit to it all? Does she say, I love you, daddy? Because she knows she has to let Freddie into the this this real world in order to vanquish him. Yeah, because she knows, because where's Craven? as himself, has told her the only person who can stop him is her because yeah. sim symbolically she is Nancy. And so that's kind of her moment where she's like, 
okay, this is getting seriously weird now and I'm just going to have to do this. Because Wes says, I find a story good enough to capture its essence, it being the spirit. Mm. So I find the story good enough to capture its essence and then it's trapped for a while, mm. which means that no one's story is ever enough to keep it trapped. Mm-hmm. So when we cut to the end, when Heather is reading the script of the film that we've just watched yeah. to Dylan, is that a way to keep the spirit suppressed? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens when that story loses its power? Yeah, I know. That's the next question you have to ask. Because that... But there'll always be something else that comes along to fill that place. It won't be Nightmare on Elm Street, but it'll be another horror thing, you know, or be like... But, if we're, but if we're talking about the Elm Street films, yeah, if that's the logic, yeah. then before <laughs> we lose him because Robert Englund's not getting any younger mm. we could have another Freddy film with Robert Englund and that because he's he said I, I would love to do one more mm. if they want to do another franchise they need a younger actor who can do it for eight films yeah but for me I would do it for one more that would be do a you think brilliant he would like, do you think he'd morph like Doctor Who like the Doctor in Doctor Who he would morph into like another a, a younger version of himself well, that would be a backdoor way into a new franchise right yeah yeah that, that could be Freddie would take on a new form. But I just don't know if I want to see any more. Like, but maybe it's just a symptom of the 80s specifically because franchise, franchises now, there is more of an awareness of, you know, making sequels, making franchises. We're very much more aware, like the MCU, the new Star Wars films. But Studios the characters are, are not aware of it. And that's more no, world... but in terms of making a world like But that's that. world building. Yeah, that's yeah. not necessarily... Because Iron Man 2 is the only one that feels like a sequel. The mm. rest of them feel like episodes in a, in a TV series. Yeah. And even Star Wars has gone that way. They've even dropped... They're not called episode 7 now, are yeah, they? Yeah. Episode 7, episode 8. We might call it that, but they're not officially called episode number. Mm. So that's a whole world building thing. This would just be a new film that feeds off the last new nightmare and mm. can give that say Blumhouse if they wanted to take hold of it the opportunity to build a new franchise because mm. he would it would become a new entity wouldn't it yeah the Robert Eglund version would die they could do it really meta yeah. I would love to see something like that I feel like we've just we've seen it we've got a new nightmare I don't think we need anything else I, I want think... a new new nightmare <laughs> new 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 nightmare <laughs> let's talk about Robert England without him there is no Freddy because on the page, you would go, a man in a hat with knives, he says this line. But Robert has such a wonderful way of infusing that character with personality, which is something we don't often see in other franchises up until, up, up until that point. Michael didn't have a personality. Jason. Stuntmen. Um, sorry? Stuntmen. All stuntmen. Leatherface. Mm. Even the, the voice in Black Christmas. Mm. None of them had a personality, but then suddenly Freddy was a fully realized character. Mm-hmm. Didn't even need his backstory. Yeah. It was all there. Mm. His physicality is brilliant. He's slouched on one side because the glove is so heavy. Mm-hmm. He's looking up through sort of the brim of the hat. And the way that he runs is almost like this. <laughs> it's almost like, like, you know how is it parakeets parakeets or <laughs> little little like spider monkeys yeah I don't, meerkats that's what i'm thinking of it's uh, like a like a meerkat 
sort of uh-huh. that sort of rolling run mixed with like the joyful giddiness of a child. Yeah, all of that. It, it's a it's really cool to watch, especially when they've got him in silhouette at times, because the silhouette is really it's really really effective. Yeah, and it's just a shame that they couldn't capture that in the remake. That's the big hole in the remake, I think. Yeah. It's like, as as good an actor as, um, what's his name? Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> I can never remember his name because he's got three first names <laughs> yeah. as his name. Yeah, Jackie Earl Haley. As, as good an actor as he is in other stuff, in this one, he, he looks like a burnt squirrel. Yes. Like his face looks like blue tack colored in. He just, <laughs> he has, he has no... <laughs> Red tack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's... He's not good in it. It's just not a good no, and version the, of Freddy. The thing about that one is they were clearly concentrating so much on not being Robert Eglund that they didn't concentrate on what they actually wanted him to yeah, be. Yeah, he's, he's just a nothing. Because even in Jason vs. Freddy, Freddy was more in line with what he was in 4 and 5. Yeah. The, the evil scariness, the, the chunkiness and the, 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 the threat that he was in New Nightmare was gone and suddenly he was Jokey Freddy again. Yeah. In Elm Street remake... The emo nightmare, as the, I like to call it. Yeah, nightmare on emo street. <laughs> <laughs> Not Elmo. <laughs> nightmare on Elmo street. Elmo so sleepy. Prime time, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but his was just so so earnestly evil so earnestly bad and so earnestly scary mm. there was no personality there i didn't need to see that backstory but it yeah. did bring up themes of should we again feel sorry for freddy yeah because at one point they do make us believe that the parents killed him based on the word of a seven-year-old. Yeah. Well, it was like I was saying earlier about how each of the films amplifies something different. And the remake amplifies the abuse. It take, yeah. It is a film about abuse. Um, and clearly that is a very heavy topic for a teen horror film. Um, but there's no reason why they can't tackle it. There's no reason they can't tackle it. But the thing is, this it stops being a teen horror film and it starts just being horrible. Yeah, it, it's just horrible. It's almost too horrible to actually watch sometimes. Like the moment where Freddie is like, "Oh, it's my little Nancy," and it's like, "And oh, I loved, I loved that dress," and it's just really uncomfortable. But um, isn't that the point of horror now? I guess so. But I mean, has, has that always yeah, been the point of I horror? I still want to watch that, it. That kind of goes back to those early Wes Cravens where it was a an uncomfortable experience. Yeah. Well, this film, because it was it's more modern, it was able to really tackle the abuse angle head on. Whereas um, in 84, when Wes Craven was writing or doing Nightmare on Elm Street, there were... A, they had to rein it back in. They had to rein it back in because they just couldn't do it at that yeah. time based on something that was happening at the time. Um, so this was like the last real avenue that was unique and original-ish that they could do with a nightmare story. And they really went for it. And I admire them for really going for it. But it makes the whole film feel so oppressive and so dense. Yes. Um, so even though actually I fucking hated this film when I first saw it, 
I was a big Nightmare fan and I was like, what have they done to Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> Watching it this time, having sat through all the shit that was the other sequels, yeah. I was like, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake has characters that feel like full rounded real characters. It has a clear drive and a narrative drive and it's trying to say something interesting and different to what everything else uh, the others have said. Um, and I actually respected it a lot more this time than I ever have. But it is so dour and it is such a downer and it's just so dark. It's just not a nice experience. It's not pleasant to watch. It's very post- and they fuck up Freddy. Uh, yes, they do. But it's very post 9-11. Everything had to yeah. be so, so realistic and so dark. And that's partly Osama Bin Laden's fault mm. and partly Christopher Nolan's fault. <laughs> yeah. Because suddenly being very realistic and very earnest about your fantastical characters was on vogue yeah the dark knight is prime example of this and then when we had dark knight rises it was so earnest that they couldn't even call catwoman catwoman yeah they couldn't even give her ears until she flipped her goggles up yeah it was it was it was almost like they were embarrassed to across a lot of films embarrassed to admit that these fantastical things were fantastical so they had to find a real life placement for it yeah how many protagonists does this film have? I know. It starts off being about Dean. Yeah. Who stabs himself in the neck or Freddy stabs him yeah. in the neck in um, in, in the diner. The Riverdale, Riverdale diner. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was, wasn't it? Uh, then it switches to Chris and Jesse. Jesse is so hot. <laughs> Thomas Decker, I've always Thomas loved Decker, him. Thomas Decker, yeah. Always loved him. Who I saw, in, now. saw him in the pub in Angel. I saw him in the Apple Store once. <laughs> Everyone has seen Thomas Decker. <laughs> Um, and then Quentin and Nancy. Yeah. Quentin? Who the fuck is Quentin? Yeah. Who was in Red State? Yes, and he was in uh, Veronica Mars. Strangely cute in yeah. a weird way. Yeah. He's got yeah. one of those faces where you think, mm, oh, okay, yes. Yeah. But the dream logic made no sense up until one point. So the first half, yes, it's old school. He yeah. haunts you in your dreams or stalks you in your <laughs> dreams, kills you in the dream, you'll die in the real world. Yes. When Quentin jumps into the pool and then is suddenly transported to the past or a memory. So he can see what the Elm Street parents did to Freddy. Yeah. That makes no sense. It, he's being shown that so we can see it. Hmm. But that's, that's right after he's talked about micro naps and how you don't know you're asleep. But why is he having that memory? Why is yeah. he being shown that? Yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. Is Freddy... Is there an element in this film where Freddy is trying to get through to the Elm Street kids and not necessarily say, this is what they did to me because I want you to know? Is it a sense of, this is what they did to me, I want you to know, but I'm still going to kill you? Yeah, possibly. That's kind of what I took from it, was Freddy going, I'm, you know, you're in a nightmare... Why don't you see mine for a bit? You know, here's my nightmare. But I mean, he, doesn't, he doesn't explicitly say but that. But that's anything. not a power we've ever seen before. Suddenly no. he can... Because it wasn't, it wasn't presented as a dream. It was presented as a flashback. Yeah, as if yeah. he'd been transported. And that doesn't follow the dream logic in any of the films. Even yeah. in the one where it doesn't have dream logic. <laughs> like yeah. four and five. Yeah. I didn't hate that bit because it... Yeah, because I, I was, I thought, well, okay, something else is going on here that we're not necessarily being, ha- having explained to us. Mm. Um, I had more of an issue with the fact that the the remake just had zero original imagery. 
Oh, 100%. You know, like at least the crappy, crappy sequels have their own spin, their own visuals. This, by virtue of being a remake that fleshes out the really darker stuff, it it literally has the body bag, the bathtub, the flying around in the bedroom. um, Which is always, always going to be compared to the original. Which is going to be compared. Tina being killed across the ceiling, which has done so much better in the physical rolling room in 84 than it was done in 2010. So it's like, well, where's the original imagery in this film? Oh, there isn't any at all. Nothing that you go, shit, that was good. Oh my God, they've really met, like mixed yeah. it up with this one. Even part two had that um, arms extended fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's such a shame that they, that they didn't get it quite right. Like you can feel them. It's great to see a horror film that takes itself seriously. Like, I mean, the opening credits could be the bone collector. It could be Silence of the Lambs. The opening <laughs> credits are like the most serious opening credits you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> so austere and so worthy. But it's great to see a, a horror film taking itself seriously, especially after all the sequels. Well, to the point but, where it, it it was kind of oppressive for itself. Where's not just the fun? Not in the ca- yeah, exactly. Even it's in the darkest even, of times, people make jokes. It's not even necessarily that it has to be fun in itself, but it needs mm. to be enjoyable for yeah, the yeah. audience. It's entertainment. Yeah. Case in point, is there anything more boring than watching characters find shit out on the internet? Oh, I know. It's, even if it is on Giga Blaze, what's it called? <laughs> Giga, Giga Blast. Blast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at least when... And, and she was like very sinisterly crossing off dead, yeah, kid, dead we, kids. On the, the photo. On the photo. Right, just write the next door, remember. Just a little, little red dot will be fine. But there's yeah. something to be said for analog investigations where you have to go to find that physical document. So then you mm. have to interact with another character or a, you know, like a, a, a situation. You like Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy when um, Bearback Cumberbatch has to go, <laughs> <laughs> where Benedict Cumberbatch has to go and sneak the file out of uh-huh. the British headquarters thing. Um, Angels and Demons, I think it was, Ugh. with the... But, you, you, you know, you've got to give it credit. That scene where he's trying to get out of the the air sealed library mm. by and they're cutting the oxygen and they he's trying to push the is that the angels and demons i haven't seen that one i've only seen the first one it was terrible so if you haven't seen that it's definitely angels and demons he's trapped under the vatican or somewhere i think mm. it's under the vatican and he's trying to get um he wanted to see like a particular <laughs> scroll <laughs> something i don't know something to do with the bible but he's trapped in this um glass library uh-huh. and he's having to push all the bookshelves so they can tumble and smash the glass uh-huh. if he had just found the information online he would have just been like oh i got it oh i'll have a pop tart instead <laughs> of actually going to a place would back to the future part two have been more or less interesting had either the almanac been on an app yeah or the letter have just been an email yeah well this is the thing is it's like it's similar to how they use CGI for when Freddy comes out of the wall. Yes. It's like we live in an age now where certain technology has advanced or things have changed. But just because it has doesn't mean you have to use it. Like we've had the prosthetics renaissance now where everyone wants prosthetics. Mm. They don't want CGI shit. So it's almost like surely people will start craving non-internet research, like things that you have to look up elsewhere or it's dangerous. And The, um, what's that film you made me watch? (laughs) With all the Muppets. Dark Crystal. Mm. Was the new one CGI or was it puppets? It was a mix, but it was predominantly puppets. Predominantly puppets. Yeah. And predominantly Star Wars now is puppets as well. Because yeah, they Obviously know. Obviously spaceships, no, but 
Because it went too far with the prequels where yes. everything was CGI and it had absolutely no weight or intrigue whatsoever. Yes, it looked like an episode of RuPaul. Yeah, and that's the other weird thing about um, Freddy in the, the Nightmare remake is that there was lots of moments where he was on screen where for some reason, I guess because the director was a music director and had to just throw all the style he could find, mm. they were using like a weird heat blur around him. Yes. And you just couldn't really see him. Yes, it was, yes. You couldn't tell if he was CGI or not. <laughs> it was very... It was awful. Very bizarre. Yeah. I just feel that was a way of them trying to make it different without actually having anything consistent. Thing is, though, I like Samuel Bayer's work, mm. the director. He um, He's did, done shitloads. He's done, did loads. I think he did... Um, Green Day. and He did Nirvana's Smells Like Teen, teen Spirit. Mm. He did Green Day, uh, American Idiot. Mm-hmm. He did my favourite music video ever, uh, Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Oh. He is a brilliant photographer. He is a brilliant uh, music film director, a uh, music video director. I don't know if this is the right project for him. No. Because his other stuff is so stylized, and even though he's working for a band, it seems to have a cohesive whole. There is definitely, you can look at, Nirvana's some of Nirvana's videos and go oh I can see that reflected in Green Day's work and then I can see my chem I can see a Green Day in the My Chemical Romance videos this has no none of his personality it well, seems not... like he's a director of a hire that was yeah. given the storyboard and said just make this work it's February we need to put it out in August I think in theory he was a great choice to direct because if he has that visual style and that slightly surreal thing going on perfect you can see why they chose him i think it falls down at the script they didn't give him anything to do yeah they gave him this really flat dry almost crime drama that happened to have a dream killer and that relied so heavily on a film that came out 25 years before yeah all he had to do was shoot um what wes had done just shoot really posh white neighborhoods (laughs) yeah um and then shoot a diner shoot some boring boiler room shit we've seen a thousand times before and then shoot a really horrible little classroom area like where is the surrealism why wasn't he pushing to really amp things up i lost interest round about the time that quinton jumped into the swimming pool right and i think they lost interest too because even 15 minutes before the end they still hadn't hatched the plan yeah. And then once they hatch the plan, it's over within eight minutes. Yeah. There's a reason why nine years on, we haven't had an Elm Street remake two. How much money did it even make? Like, it's all based on box office. So it made, like, it didn't do, it did 115 million. Based on a... On a 35 million budget. So it's not a flop by no, any sense. No, it's not a flop. But I just, I guess they just can't figure out, I mean, Freddy was shit. So they'd have to completely recast Freddy, basically, is the problem. Like, if Freddy they, had been good, they would have been able to just carry on easily. But also, sometimes stories only have so many legs. Yeah. Look at what they've done with the Terminator film. We've now got... <laughs> God. I haven't, well, obviously, we haven't seen Atomic Publication. We haven't seen <laughs> Dark Fate. But we've now had five Terminator movies where the first two are absolutely phenomenal and have a consistent whole. There is a story there. And by mm. the end of the second one, the story is done. Yeah. The third one tries to pick it up. It didn't work. The fourth one tried to pick it up. It didn't work. Genesis tried to pick it up. It was all right, but it didn't work. Mm. Sometimes stories just don't need to be told and they're only so long. Yeah. Should we talk about our top five deaths? All right, then go on. My number five 
is Glenn Lance, played by Johnny Depp. When he's dragged into the bed and then he's slashed and then the blood shoots up and we don't even see a body. Yeah. That I, might be the only time that we don't fully see a body. Because <laughs> Tina's body is, is broadcast on the news. Yeah, well, Nancy comes downstairs and there's like a see-through body bag on the news <laughs> and her arm flops out. It's so, oh, just so disgraceful. I never really liked Glenn's death. Really? I know it's like this huge cult thing, like, oh my God, it's so much blood. It's so, uh, but I just thought it was a bit rubbish, a bit lame. Oh, well, fuck you. <laughs> What's your number five there? He's not in my top five. <laughs> my number five is the cockroach girl in number four. Because <laughs> it was just horrible and so unexpected. And just, yeah, just awful. So stupid. <laughs> it's like bullshit David Cronenberg. Yeah. yeah but I it's guess like I fly. I think I just like body horror. So that for me was like, oh. You do like body horror. Number four for me is Philip Anderson from Elm Street 3. He's the one who made all the puppets. So his veins get pulled out and then he's sort of marionetted to the top of the tower and then woken up and then pushed off. Which also breaks the dream logic rules because we see the real Philip walking through a door, like a, a, shut, a closed door. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you panicked me there. I thought, have I been in a dream my entire life? I've walked through many doors. What's my your number four? My number four is Dan, the major league hunk, when he dies on the bike in number five. I know it's ruined by Freddie's stupid puns. But it's just such a fucked up, horrible thing that happens. It reminds me of the um, the ketchup robot at the end of Superman 3. My third one is the cockroach one. Fantastic. It's because she's so tough and then her elbows get snapped and then yeah. they fall off. And then she... It is fucking dumb, but it is funny. She's working out with those polished nails. That's what we all do that. Yeah. The bit that gets me is when Freddy squeezes the cockroach trap and then like just slime squirts out. Not it's, enough. It's the sticky stuff. Oh, I thought that was like the insides of the cockroach. No. Don't you hear like a little, ah, as well? Probably. <laughs> that's, the, that's my fun, Probably. that's the bit in the entire franchise that made me laugh the most was the beginning of Nightmare 2 when he has the nightmare and then it cuts to his mum cutting up tomatoes and then you just hear this <laughs> blood-curdling shriek from upstairs and everyone's just like, how's your breakfast? Yeah, fine. How's your, yeah, it's great. Oh, he's having another nightmare. Maybe it was the tomatoes that were screaming. <laughs> My number three is uh, Grady in number two. When his oh, best... the coach? No, no, no. Grady, the Ron Grady, when he gets killed in the bedroom. The really hot one. Remind me how he dies? Well, that's when Freddy comes out, nod wink, of Jesse. Oh, and, and stabs him, him, him. And the, the blades go through the, the, door through the door to the parents. And his dad's like, Ron, <laughs> my beautiful gay son. I love my, oh, my dead, dead gay, gay son. son. <laughs> Come on, Ron, um, just come out. My number two is Tina Gray uh, from the first one. Slashed and levitated across the ceiling and the walls and then just dropped. Yeah, awful. What's your number two? My number two is Philip in number three. The, the puppet one. Oh, puppet one. Yeah. It's my just num- so visceral. Like when, he's, when his arms are going up and down and his wrists are kind of bent back. And, and he's asleep. And he's asleep. My number one is Joey. Not from Elm Street 3, but when he comes back for Elm Street 4 and he's killed, when he's pulled into the waterbed and he's stabbed and he drowns. And this is more of a personal fear because I don't like, I don't like water. I don't let it run on my face in the shower. What? I, 
I said I don't. You need to listen. You need to listen. I said I don't let it run on my face in the shower, that so I stand weird. away and bring water to my face. That's I weird. don't like swimming, so drowning just seems like a very painful and uncomfortable and suffocating way to die. Coupled that with the fact that it's you know you'd be in this surrealist zone and you'd be stabbed by something you can't necessarily see. How's this for a wet dream? Yes. And you've got someone chanting dirty words into your ear. So that oh. for me is, is is really quite frightening. It was frightening for me because I thought Joey was so oh, hot. So hot. And he'd been working out between film three oh, yeah. and four. And he'd grown and his he, little mullet. And he kept having dreams about naked women. I was like, Joey, just confess how you feel about <laughs> Jesse and we can have it done. Why couldn't he play Jesse? Then he could have been those white oh, pants. God damn it. My number one is Tina in Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Because it's just horrific and it's such a visceral, shocking moment. And it, hold, it holds up. It's, it stood the test of time. It's brilliant. So that was the Nightmare on Elm Street series directed by Wes Craven and some other people. <laughs> We're going to be back soon. We are going to be doing our Christmas and our end of year wrap up and another special episode that you'll have to just wait for. We're on Twitter. Did you know that, Rob? Yeah? Yeah, it's usually me bitching yeah, at people. When I say we're on Twitter, it's actually Rob. <laughs> um, Rat Torn Stubbs Pod. Let us know what you think of A Nightmare on Elm Street. What's your favourite? What's your favourite death? Do you think that we should have a sequel or a reboot? Um, just generally let us know how you're feeling, really. Like, do you want a cup of tea or something? Jump onto Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and TuneIn Radio and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We're off for a sleep. My God, I need to sleep. I've been awake for so long. I think I'm having micro dreams. <laughs> I just dreamt we did a... Oh my God, I dreamt we did a podcast about Nightmare on Elm Street and then you made me a cup of tea and your cat gave me itchy eyes. You really are dreaming because I'm not making you a cup of tea. Your pussy made my eyes itch. (laughs) Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut!